God. Alan, are you there? Yes, I am, yeah. Uh, I, I can't believe the difficulty we had this morning. Uh, it's pretty standard. <laughs> it was so odd. I'm, I'm dialing the number that, you know, it's saying I'm, it's out of order. Uh-huh. And I forward it to the uh, program director. I said, could you figure this thing out? Uh-huh. And between my computer and her computer, the number changed. Really? Yeah, okay. That's weird. Yeah, well, I, I, I picked up the phone. I realized it was after 10 past and to phone you. And I had, uh, had uh, there's somebody else on the phone, and I hadn't dialed anywhere, and it didn't ring here, you know. I think uh, they're trying to put the squeeze on us, Alan. Yeah, it's pretty common. Uh, it's, it's, they're watching us everywhere, aren't well, they? Well, they are, you know, yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, I've been telling folks you were one of the foremost experts, uh, historian and researchers on the secret societies and Illuminati, and you go all the way back to the beginning of dirt on this stuff. Yeah, you have to. Um, it's not a, a recent thing to control vast populations of people. It's been um, recorded from ancient times and taught to the high courts of kings and queens down through the ages. And it simply got much, much bigger and more refined when it went into large governments with bureaucracies and uh, secret services like the CIA and, and these kinds of things. So the society has always been planned ahead of time because those in power literally plan the future. They don't want to lose control, but they must convince the public that they're on the cutting edge of evolution with each generation. And it never dawns on them then that every major thing that happens in their life has actually been planned ahead of time. The, uh, that's why it works so well. Yeah. The, the earliest mind control guy, uh, was, his, was it Nimrod? Or... Uh... It goes back even further. Okay. Uh, it depends even whose histories you take, uh, because in, um, India probably has the oldest histories uh, in their archives, because every every country has archives as opposed to public libraries. Government like people. Governments like to keep records. Uh, yeah, they do, because if something works and a formula works, then you never change the formula, but you don't want the public to know that you have the formulas, because even Plato himself talks about um, the techniques of creating cultures for whole peoples and whole countries, and how it was well understood in his day, and how nothing would be allowed to happen in the culture that would upset the dominant minority, the rulers, and therefore the dominant minority had to employ great thinkers, great philosophers, and, uh, and people with an academy to, to uh, always update and, and help uh, modify the culture from the top down. Yeah, and, uh, and that's what we've had mainly in this. It was great to live in the, in the 70s and the 80s and, and watch the, the tail end of the, the pop rock culture and how it was really pushed from the top by multi-multi-billionaires, really. It wasn't a grassroots thing at all. We always think it's our idea, don't we? We do. <laughs> yeah. Now, one of the, the best ways to control civilization, and I've always suspected this, was through an, an omnipresent God. Um, if if you're not going to be around government control, say you're going to live out in the country or whatever, well, there's always that, that fallback thing that, you know, the, there's a God watching you, and so you just better go ahead and pay your taxes. And, and I think the early kings or, or the, the masons or the echelon, I guess, the elites, figured this out that, hey... To keep these people in line and not overthrow me, one they got to think I'm I'm connected to the gods or I am a god myself, yeah. and I'm everywhere, and you can't overthrow me because I'm here to protect you. I'm a wonderful guy and um, you know protect you from invasion. But you guys got to pay attention, and you know that way you won't kill me when I come and ask for your gold. 
Yes, and, and uh, that, that came even... Uh, the, the structure existed before the days of Sumer. Uh, there's no doubt about that. Uh, the, the Sumer really was a sort of, um, I would call it, more modern uh, prototype of, of the pre present-day society. And they obviously had the knowledge from previous civilizations, the Hurrian civilization that existed before that. So we're going back 10,000 years, 15,000 years. Now, and, and, it, just uh, seemed, it just seems so hard to wrap your hands around a dynasty or families that can stay in power behind the scenes and control nations, control money supplies, control wars, c control famines. Yeah. And it's like, no, people really aren't that evil. Or, or how come uh, they haven't interbred? And, uh, yeah. you know, how come we're not w we're seeing this? Yes, uh, and that's the technique again. Uh, kings and queens always had front people to speak for them. It's no different from today. Today we have governments to speak really for an elite, and, and we're, we're taught to believe that governments are in charge. So the governments take the heat off the real rulers. That's the job of the frontman. Uh, and Britain always had a chancellor or something before that for a king, and he would take the heat for all the decisions that were made because the king was above all of that, you see. He was a nice guy, and it kept him a nice guy. So the, the chancellor would take the heat. Uh, so it's the same thing in all ages. Today we have a better cover called democracy in most of the countries. And uh, democracy is a favorable thing. Plato talked about it some 2,300 years ago. He said uh, this, this system, this perfect utopia for the elite, the guardian class, he called them, um, will, will use a form of the Republican democracy. And because democracy, you can always count that 80% of the people will do what the elite want them to do, and therefore they'll pretend it's majority rule. But 80% will do what they're told to do. That's what it really meant. It's, it's so obvious today. I mean, we just, there was just a vote in our U.S. Senate uh, yesterday, uh, I think it was 99 to 0, about basically reprimanding Iran and saying, if you continue to fund uh, bad guys over there, uh, we're not going to like it. And he's like, no debate. It's like they turned on the, the mist machine and they all went to sleep or they're all under some sort of gigantic mind control. And I thought, well, that's the most worthless bill or stupid thing I've ever heard in my life. And it's a 100% vote? I, I know. And this is the thing, too. We've got to realize that there, there's consensus behind the scenes through societies within government. Uh, all major politicians, if they've stayed in government for more than one term, even in the lower ranks, uh, they're allowed into a higher, uh, uh, parallel rank, where they're told part of the agenda, and they must agree to abide by the rules of the decisions made by their superiors. And so they, they, they vote the way they're told to vote. Uh, Carl Quigley, Professor Carl Quigley, uh, wrote about this in his book Tragedy and Hope and the Anglo-American Establishment. Now, he was authorized to pick people to be Rhodes Scholars for world government. That was the purpose of the Rhodes Scholarships. He, he picked Bill Clinton, amongst others. And he was the, the official historian uh, for the Council on Foreign Relations, this parallel group uh, that actually makes... In fact, they drafted up all the plans for the American integration, this, this non-governmental organization. <laughs> and... Uh, and they are uh, simply the American branch of the Royal Institute for International Affairs. That's the British Commonwealth branch. And so it's run from London. And um, 
uh, he wrote about this, and he, he was all for it. He was part of them. He was a member. And uh, he, he said then in the 1960s in his book, he said uh, uh, the United States government has been run by a parallel government uh, for at least 60 years, and that was in the 1960s. Wow. And he, he talked about the whole agenda. He filled in, he filled in all the little blank spots of, of what led up to wars and what was behind them and admitted that he and his group and other other groups that belonged to the same circle worked in concert to bring on these wars. And, uh, and they laid out the plans for the whole global empire for the future. And um, he, it's not just the politicians that they bring in, certain politicians. It's also a vast amount of your higher bureaucrats because the bureaucrats are more important and they have been since World War One with the League of Nations. Now, because then the, the, the bureaucrats are, have lifelong positions in particular offices and departments and they bypass the government and go straight to their, their headquarters, at the, which is now the United Nations. We're on the air with Alan Watt. Uh, you can go to his website at cuttingthroughthematrix.net. And uh, you've got uh, three books out right now, or one, you're a, a three-volume set, yeah. um, Cutting Through the Volumes 1, 2, and 3. It's available for our listeners out here. Go onto his website. You can order it directly. He also has DVDs um, that will... You'll never think the same. And one of the things we're doing down here, Alan, is that we have embarked on an agenda here at the station. I own it. Mm -hmm. We're a little small station here, but we're the most powerful station in the Northwest up here. That the time, I sense that the time is very, very short. And we mm -hmm. have now got to get the information, get the truth out here as fast as possible. Um, and that's one of the reasons we wanted you here on the, on the show is like, we're trying to lift the matrix that everybody's been under here, and it seems like we're finding out every core belief we've had or every political thought is has been a lie. Yes, it has. It, it truly has. I mean, I was uh, I was discussing with some people uh, about the, the, the problems with the Middle East and why it's going on, and I said you have to go back into the memoirs of uh, British officials. Um, of consular generals, people that were put in charge of whole countries that the British Empire set up a long time ago, and read their own memoirs. And you'll find, for instance, that um, Sir Ronald Storrs, S-T-O-R-R-S, uh, was the, the, the lieutenant governor. He was put in charge of, of the British takeover of the country called Palestine back in the 1920s and 30s in preparation for the creation of a state of Israel. Yeah, and, we, we uh, and what he said in his own memoirs, and, and it's very flippant for those who don't understand history, it's very important, a very little, a little quip, and that's how history is made, or missed. He said, we have set up in the Middle East another um, Ulster. Now, Ulster and Ireland was set up by London to cause frequent dis uh, dissension and troubles done through to the present century in, in Ireland uh, with the Protestants and the Catholics using religion primarily as, as a motive of war and eventual takeover. It was to keep a, a constant pot boiling and simmering that the whole world would feel the effects of. And that's how far back we're talking, 1920s. I think Samuel Adams said fear is the foundations of most governments. It is. And... And then you hit on something that was very profound for me. It's like, governments fear peacetime. Yes, they do. Uh, they admit themselves uh, that uh, the, first, the first reason for government existing is to protect 
the rest of the little people, uh, even in a tribal situation, from those guys over there, uh, across the other side of that pond that you drink off, out of. And, um, and so the biggest guy in the tribe was picked. Now, your problem then is uh, if you start spoiling the big guy and, and he has to drop back down into your way of living, your standards of living, he might not like it. But at least a tribe could overcome one person. And that's why the tribal system, it was easier. He couldn't get a standing army together be- until money came along. And also, money was the key to standing armies. And also the little guy, like we can equate to the middle class, that once you start to gain cash or affluence or, or spare time, you can do positive things with that, whether you want to run for office or you want to uh, yeah. do charity work or start buildings. Uh, you become you know, wealthier and wealthier and becomes a threat to them. It becomes a threat, and that's why uh, people think that you... And we're all trained. You see, the whole world, when you think of a whole world trained to go to use this thing called money, which is really a trick, uh, because once they bring money in, they can tax the back from you. And the, the word tax means to labor. You tax yourself when you labor. Now, they, they take part of your labor back, then they, they employ more people. And as long as everyone believes in this money, you can hire armies, whole armies and police and um, think tanks to keep the people dominated. Money is the key to it. Yeah. I think there was a quote from one of the old Rothschild patriot women that said, wars don't start unless my boys want them to start. Hey, that's right. They don't start. Uh, I was watching uh, a program two, two years ago on public broadcasting, and it was about the troubles in Sierra Leone. And Sierra Leone, of course, is rich in tremendous minerals and diamonds and so on. And they found out that uh, companies, these uh, companies in Britain primarily and New York, working in tandem, had hired uh, thousands of mercenaries, uh, British and American primarily, to go in there and train the natives to, to have revolutions in order that they could take over the, the vast uh, diamond fields there. And they talked to one of the guys at the head of one of these big London corporations of gold and and precious metals and diamonds and platinums and and he literally couldn't understand the reporter when the reporter says how can you possibly plan something like this and kill thousands of people for money and the man looked and he saw it was incredulous he says it's business don't you understand that was his answer it's business just business he said they're sitting on all that land and doing nothing with it so, so kill them. Yeah, let's you know use it for ourselves and uh-huh. exploit it and make them slaves. Now, there's the Rockefellers. I mean, our audience is, is very much aware of the the Federal Reserve Act and the Income Tax Act and how the, these criminals, the ruling families or the wealthiest families, in basically came in and created their own money supply and own our money supply. And a lot of people are still ignorant about that, but not this audience. Yeah. And we've watched the dollar value go from you know. Well, it's worth a penny today compared to what it was. Um, and Montana, just from the 60s, went from the fourth in per capita income in the nation to dead last right now because we were a resource-based state here. And you know, they've, you know what they've all done with our resources. They locked them up, sent them all overseas, and now we import them. Yeah. Um, so there's an agenda to destroy America. Um, and I just can't figure what mindset these people have because America was good to them. They made money. And, uh. and, and now... You know, they're like, well, let's merge Canada and Mexico with the United States. And that plan's going on, you know, and the rest of the world's starting to reject this Federal Reserve note. So, aha, uh-huh. well, we can issue you a new currency. Mm-hmm. 
It's just yeah. All we're living through is a business plan. The whole world is just one big long business plan. And Karl Marx talked about the unification of the Americas uh, in, in the 1850s. He, he wrote about it, and he said eventually the world that we are planning. Now Karl Marx, remember, was employed by the Rothschilds in London while he wrote the Communist Manifesto with a bunch of people, a whole team of people. Mm -hmm. It wasn't just one person who did it. He was a, a failed journalist, and that's why they hired him not because of his belief system. And so Karl Marx talked about the, uh, the, the unification of the world under a super government, which would come probably in a hundred years' time or to the end of the millennium. And he said um, there will also be three main trading blocks. A united Europe will be first, followed by a united Americas, and then followed by um, a united Pacific region. And yeah. that's exactly what they've been working towards. Now, I think some people may have the misconception or that there's going to be global governments like, ah, well, okay, finally we're going to have a place to settle our differences like the UN or there's going to be a, a world premier or three premiers and we'll have this great body of government to run the world. I don't see it that way. I see the shadow government running the world and yeah. the illusion of countries still around. Uh, yes, the, 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 the whole thing is to always use nationalism, and this was the key even with communism. Communism was the flip side of capitalism. It was two sides of the same coin. It was the dialectic technique of steering the populations of the world into where they wanted them to be, the big sheep pen. And, uh, and, and so the whole agenda was to get the public to use nationalism uh, first of all and, and then through nationalism and wars and conflict, they would come to uh, war weariness, and then they would suggest we amalgamate to end the wars, and then give up your nationalism gradually. The only country really that's had an overdose of nationalism is the United States. The rest of the countries have had the rug pulled from underneath them uh, about 50 years ago, gradually. I want to so give because the United States was chosen to be the engine to bring all this about. And as the U.S. is finishing off its main job of standardizing the world in the Middle East, they would gradually bring the U.S. down to the same world standard as everyone else. I've been warning people that for decades. I said this this idea of unions and trees is not, even though they say it's going to, oh, American exports, American jobs, raise our standard of living. No, 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 no. It is to lower ours to theirs. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yes, it is. I mean, uh, Morris Strong, for instance, Morris Strong works for... He was first signed off with um, uh, Rockefeller. He was chosen and groomed. And he's a big player for the United Nations and, uh, and big enterprises across the globe. But he also drafted up the Earth Charter, which uh, gives everything else rights except us. Yeah, he, along with Mikhail Gorbachev. And he was asked at the end of the 92 uh, Earth Charter meeting, and what he meant about uh, the rights of, of animals, he said, he said, why don't you give humans rights? Now, this is an American who was asking him the question. And he says, you Americans, he says, you'll wish you had the rights of trees by the time we're finished. <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh-huh. Now, you hit on something. I've heard you on other shows do this, and I've listened to you quite a bit on uh, your website. And Now, for our audience out there, it's cuttingthroughthematrix.net. I encourage you, please, buy his DVDs. Um, we can't cover everything here today. Uh, Alan, you also do a weekly blurb, I think, on there, too, don't you? I do it three generally, yeah. Okay. Um, so we, we want to uh, get our audiences acquainted with you as they possibly can through your books, through your DVDs, 
and uh, through your uh, uh, internet broadcast that you have on your website there. So if you're just hearing Alan for the first time today, I, I hope I can, you know, interrupt me and you take over anytime we we got to get in the right direction, Alan. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now you hit on something about America's democratization of the Middle East or standardization over there. Explain a little bit what the future and the plan is for the United States, because a lot of people need to hear this. And from if I can pick up that we were, this was all planned about us going in there decades ago. Oh, yeah. And then there's something that's supposed to happen to us. Mm-hmm. Yes. The, the, uh, you can go back even to, <clears throat> to the, as I say, the main societies that, that, that stuck their head up. They probably always existed in one, under one name or another, but they, they put their head up in the 1800s. And um, that was when the big push to, to really forward the, the Darwinistic theories came along, which was to dispel all ideas of the old gods and old religions and bring in a scientific dictatorship type of system where we'd be trained by experts and we'd, we would believe the experts the way we used to believe what priests said. And that has happened. And uh, it was Professor Thomas Huxley uh, who was the best friend of Tar- Charles Darwin, who picked certain people to be authors that would be made to be famous, uh, like H.G. Wells in the 1800s. And he, he predicted the whole uh, setup for the, for, the, for the 1900s. They, they, they talked about creating a system of free love to destroy the last vestiges of the tribal system, which was marriage uh, between man and wife, and how they would uh, separate the children from, from the adults and the state would bring up the children under a scientific formula where the children would become basically um, almost robotized uh, wards of the state. They would do what they were told. The whole thing was to dominate uh, what they called inferior types, those with less IQs, and they believed being Darwinists that they had the right because of the superiority of intellect and wealth uh, to run the planet and, and direct the planet as they pleased. Their biggest problem were the masses who might object. So they'd have to train the masses um, in different uh, ways without the public being aware they were being trained and that their ideas that they would have, uh, their opinions they would hold and even fight for were not actually their opinions. They'd been uh, um, marketed right into their minds. And you'll find that's happened today. Uh, but they've wrote lots of books about this from the top, the main players. And uh, right up through the 1900s, we have... We have many of the major players that help formulate the system and actually have brought us to where we are today, writing about it in their own memoirs in the early 1900s onwards. Now, uh, we all nobody thought, reads the books. We always thought uh, 1984 was just a, a bizarre piece of science fiction fantasy. Uh, yeah. uh, it seems like every page is coming true today. Yes, it is, because once again, if you go into the history of the author, and uh, Blair was his name, and uh, he came from a family of high um, bureaucrats and people who worked for the home office and, and the foreign office in the British government. His father, uh, in the 1930s, was the, the overseer for Burma, for the British Opium Corporation. And that came out in Parliament by a, a politician called Thomas uh, Thompson. And because they just found out that they had a department of opium, they didn't know. And when they checked into who owned this, this opium corporation that the British taxpayer was funding and paying the salaries of all the employees, it turned out to be a crown corporation. It was only the British nobility and royalty that had shares in it. 
Oh, okay. Let me. You, yeah, now it seems like heroin and, and opium production is five times higher than before the war started. Yes, it is. Now, you said something about the crown, and this is another misconception a lot of people have. They think of the crown, they think of the queen mum, you know, and for whatever reason, Americans have been brainwashed thinking that, gosh, if we only had a, a royal family, like, you know, like, it was pathetic the way this country almost went into mourning or national mourning over princess dying. Wait, yeah. she's not ours, you know, sorry, get over it. <laughs> they, I mean, they just long to be subjects or something, yeah. but the crown... People misconstrue that to mean like the monarchy. The crown is a, a completely separate entity. It is. Could you the crown goes back into a feudal system where they had their own laws, and they still do have their own laws for royalty and nobility. They cannot be tried in a, normie, a normal court of law. They must be only tried amongst their peer group. And, of course, they have a different set of rules of things which they are allowed to do, um, which uh, is pretty well anything at all. Isn't it true they operate out of the six-acre area called the City of London, which is basically a, a separate nation-state? It has a sovereign status, yeah. And it definitely does have some of their, their big uh, organizations based there. But, yeah, they live around London and in the areas around London, and they have offices and, and the second and third and fourth homes within London when they have to go in, uh, all the big players. But we call it in Britain, we call it the establishment. It's always been there. You know, it's what it, government. Uh, one of the stories you've, t you've told um, is what made you wake up. I mean, what, what set the light bulb go off of this? And it was when you're a young man uh, living in Scotland, like after World War II. Yeah. The same thing we were promised here, the peace dividend. Oh, once we, this war is over, we, we don't need to spend all this money on military. The peace and prosperity will be unbelievable. We're all going to, you know, thanks for sending your kids to die for us. Now, here's the results. We're going to reap the benefits. And that never has does happen, does it? It never happens. In fact, if you once in a while uh, um, here in Canada, they'll show you old reruns of, of our history, past news types uh, of reruns going back to before World War Two. And there was a big rush then after the League of Nations was signed. That was the precursor of the United Nations. And and uh, you, you saw all these British uh, ships dumping thousands of tons of ammunition and firearms into the ocean under the pact they signed then to disarm and and as, and, and as they were doing that the same boys who owned the armaments companies were, were pushing for war a second war with Germany so that they rearm all over again yeah but after World War II and before World War II they said if we fight this war and they said the same thing in the first world war then everyone in Britain will have a home to live in because most folk at that time in Britain never owned their own home it was, it was a foreign concept to the average person in Britain. There's only a small minority who actually owned their own house, and everyone else had to rent. And the, the wages and incomes and the prices were pretty well manipulated and fixed, so the average person could never save money. That was the way this, the British system was so rigidly uh, regulated. And so after World War One came along and they were running out of men, um, and so they said, well, we'll build all these houses for you with your tax money and give you something back for the first time from your tax money if you, if you just fight this war. Well, after the war, it never happened, so they tried the same thing in the Second World War, and then they opened up old condemned buildings to house the people in. I was born in one, a one-room apartment with four people living in the room, and uh, that, was, that, was, uh, that was way long after World War II. 
the peace dividend. Yeah. <laughs> and, I, and I thought at the time, too, when I started to, to realize what was happening, before I was five, I went into libraries where I could read before I went to school. And um, I, I, I looked at books to, to see all these things. about Because the, everyone was still talking about what happened during the war. In 1952, there was still rationing, or 1951, they were still giving ration cards to every British person for food. Unbelievable. And uh, so I went into the, into the libraries, and, I, and lo and behold, um, I, I, I read this kind of stuff, and I, and I said, how come if Britain is such an old empire, and they fought wars for hundreds and hundreds of years, and they looted all the gold from Spain, and they looted gold from this country and France and so on, how come only a small minority in London and their descendants ever benefited from it. And that, that was almost my wake-up call right there. They are masters at mind control and brainwashing, and, yeah. um, and I've, I'm a victim of it. I mean, I'm, like I said, I'm, I'm learning here in these last couple of years that just about everything I believed in has been a lie. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the things that's a hot debate in this country is health care. They're going, oh, Hillary Care, oh my God, you're going to turn the thing over to the government? What can the government do right? They have basically turned us against our own government. And now, government, according to you know the way this country did start off, was we the people. Mm-hmm. We the people. We are the masters of our government. They are subservient to us, and we hire government to do things that we can't individually do, such as build roads, bridges, um, you know, armaments, defend the country, so on and so forth. When it comes down to, say, health care, it's like, oh, you can't have that. Corporatism's good. Privatization's good. I mean, they're selling our ports. They're selling our public roads. I mean, they're, they've brainwashed us into thinking that everything public is therefore socialism evil. Yeah. And But give it to the capitalist uh, elite, and they can take care of it better for you. Well, again, uh, that is what Quigley said, remember, for the in his own book, Tragedy and Hope and the Anglo-American establishment, it's his other book, and he said, he said, we are creating a new type of, uh, a new system more on the ground, along the, the, the grounds of, or the ways of a feudal system, a new feudal system of public-private partnership, which in, in reality, he said, uh, the CEOs of the big international corporations will be the new feudal overlords. Now, my my understanding of public-private partnership has always been fascism. Uh-huh, yep. <laughs> it's more than fascism. What it means, really, is that the public play, pays for, for the building and the maintenance of, and 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 uh, the private part is to reap uh, the profits. A, a good example here in this country is our uh, dams. You know, yep. we, we built these dams out of public funds to provide us cheap, low-cost electricity, and then somehow they all got sold off. Yeah. And they're doing it worldwide. You must remember that everything that's happening to the United States has already been happening to most of the other countries in the world for long before. Now, these... They were the last one to, to use the same system to be brought into the fold, you see. And see. you'll find the same company based in London. Uh, as take, it, will, it will end up owning the water rights of the world. Every little pool, a pond, dug well, drilled well, whatever, across the planet will be owned by them eventually and natural gas. We've seen it here in Montana. Yeah. Already. And, um, you know, one of the biggest hoaxes is that these super, super capitalists are, they're the ones who fund and they love communism. I mean, mm-hmm. communism is their favorite form of government because yeah, they they only have to deal with one or two entities at the top and they can control all the masses through a totalitarian regime. But they're, they 
it's unbelievable. And if you look at America and compare it to the Communist Manifesto, we've adopted almost every plank here in this country. You have, uh, you have, and it was meant to be so because uh, it's a dialectical process. You must create an enemy to terrify the public so that you can tax them even further and experiment with a new type of system which will be brought in globally. And that's why they created the, the Soviet Union. The Soviet Union was heavily funded from New York and London from the very beginning. And even some top players in, uh, who were lords in the British government uh, system, like Lord Bertrand Russell, he, he, in his own memoirs, he said that he was sent to, to uh, China back in the 1920s to teach at universities and to, to teach the beginnings of communism. Now, why would the top capitalist, the British uh, crown and royalty, be sending one of their own brethren, a lord, over there to teach communism? It's only when you go into the histories you realize, no, they created the, the, their supposed opposite. Yeah, and, and, and the synthesis was the reason, because when you create two conflicting systems, eventually you get war-weary, the people are want peace, they're terrified of being bombed out of existence, and that was really pushed in the 60s and 70s to terrify everyone. And then you, you amalgamate the two systems together into the third way. And Plato called it the third way. He says that this is the technique. You create two opposites, warring factions, make the people war-weary, and then blend them into the combination of the two. And that's where you have a fascist elite at the top running things un unhindered, and they have a communistic-type bureaucracy running the people in a, in a communistic fashion. And they have written in all their books, all from the capitalist side, that they favored collectivism uh, more than any other form of government for controlling the public. And that's such an easy sell to an ignorant masses because it promises them something for nothing. We're all going to share the wealth. We're all yep. going to be the same. We're, it's going to be the benefit. No one's going to be richer than others from each to according to his needs and all that kind of baloney, which never comes to pass. That's never, just the sales the tool. I remember when... Uh, they, they had decided, and I'm sure they probably decided that when they set up the Soviet Union, when they would uh, dismantle it. Uh, that's how far ahead they planned everything. And um, when the so-called Berlin Wall went down, uh, just by chance, of course, and uh, everyone says, oh, oh, that's strange. Didn't see it coming. Uh, then then uh, I remember reading in a British newspaper, I think it was the Daily Mail, uh, and a big picture there of this man coming out of a building with a big, big bag. And it happened to be a guy, Solomon, who was the chief banker for the Soviet system, who happened to be a cousin of the Rothschilds. And, and it was a, a big, a big write-up about uh, a strange concept of this communist country that supposedly uh, didn't use uh, the capitalist system. And yet the, this uh, Solomon was, was leaving the Soviet Union with all the loot, billions and billions in dollars, and going back to London. Wow. <laughs> so, yeah, they were completely... You know, one of the, the great mind control things to make people live in fear, and I never could even as a young kid understand this, why would the average Soviet family want to annihilate the average American family? And, and all yeah. we, by keeping our, our society separate with news blacks out, the communists living, all these people are living under, you know, horrible, 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 and, and you guys and whatever stories they told us to them about us. But never did we get together. It was always the sable rattling of our leaders we'd see on TV. And like, yeah. oh, my God, you know, it's, it's tough. They're going to nuke us, you know. Mm -hmm. And yeah. we just blindly follow through with whatever they want us to because of the imaginary bad guy. And it was the same, too, with Lord Bertrand Russell. See, Lord Bertrand Russell, uh, while he was promoting uh, this communistic style and, and free love, he had experimental schools authorized by the Crown back in the 1920s, right through the 50s and 60s. He was still alive.
And he was a guy who set up the anti-war uh, movement. And he, it was him who took the old occultic sign, turned upside down for ban the bomb. And he ran the Committee of 100. You'll find that in, in mem his own memoirs. And the Committee of 100 was the, was the radical side that would storm American bases and smash down the outer perimeter fences. Uh, and it was all a show to get big publicity, to terrify everyone of a reality that was never meant to happen. Uh, but the, the psychological impact was to terrify the whole world and to get thousands of people marching for peace and, and also to give up all their rights in the process. You know, it's just like when they have the G8 meetings and the uh, planned anarchists are always there to riot. And, you know, yes. they're funded by the same people. They're funded and coordinated. And I'll tell you one thing. You see, I used to be heavily involved, much bigger than most folk know. So I use different names uh, and uh, in the music industry for writing and for performing and also um, uh, in other ways, even in session work and guitar and so on. And, and uh, sometimes you'd be, you go to a country and someone would approach you and say, could you sing at a charity event? And you say, well, sure, you know. And in Canada, I, I'd come over uh, for a visit at the time. I was, still, I was living in Norway. And I came over for a visit. And uh, a girl says, could we, would you play at this um, workers' meeting? I says, oh, sure. It was a big, big function in Toronto. And uh, I sang a couple of songs and sat down. Then I was invited into the back room where the major members came in and the other players and performers. But also the people who were there were the ones who ran uh, the left-wing movements in, in the country. And then after that, there was a select few taken even later into the night into another place outside, uh, into an apartment. There was only about 12 of us there. And because I'd, 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 this girl had asked me, I'd sort of, she just come along, I went along. And a guy came in who just came over from the the Moscow University, just got off the plane. He had been based in California before he went to Moscow University, and he was also English. And he sat and, and started telling them all of their plans for, for um, networking all of the radical groups together, uh, all radical, fundamental, and, and, and atheistic groups, all together, combine them all, including the homosexual movements and lesbian movements. And I sat and listened to all of this, you know? And I, I says, well, what is this? I just came to play a song. <laughs> and then, uh, well, the thing was what got me, and I asked him, I says, well, how come? I says, how come you can, you can, this is during the Cold War. I says, how come you can come from Britain, go and live in California, run the top communist societies in California, uh, go over to, to and study in, in the Moscow University, and then uh, walk right into Canada, and no one bothers you. And that's when he stopped and gave me this strange blank. Nobody had asked him before. It just told me that all of the agencies and all of the countries would, would know him, there's no doubt about it. And, and he worked for a higher group than any of them, higher than communism. The ones who controlled communism and capitalism, that's why he had a free hand to go anywhere he wanted to. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Now, yeah. you know, I've been fighting the environmental extremist movement here for, gosh, 25 years. Uh -huh. And these poor working ants at the bottom, you know, the ones that show up, they wear their, their, their flannels and go tie themselves to a tree and file the lawsuits. Yeah. And the same with the radical lesbian gay movement, the militant part. They don't even realize that they're a creation of the people they hate. That's right. They don't know. They don't. They're all being used. And that's the, 
the macabre beauty of this technique. They find people who are on the fringes, who are left out of society, and they give them a form of hope. And they also boost their egos, telling them some of them will even take over and, uh, and fund them too, and, and then lead them. And they always use these groups. And once they've used them, they destroy them. They have, they have no personal interest in what you think, what you believe, or, or your sexual preference or anything else. Is They don't care. And um, you understand those at the top almost see themselves as another race. They are psychopathic. They're inbred psychopaths. They don't have empathy for ordinary people. They don't have it at all. It doesn't exist in them. You have to be a psychopath if you think killing four billion people is a good idea. Yes, or, or even a thousand. You know, I mean... Twenty or two, one. Yeah, these people, these people uh, say the end justifies the means, and they have used this down through the ages to get wars begun, started. Um, they've used uh, covert groups to, to start the killings and blame someone else. This is a favorite technique down through the ages, you know. Now, how do you see, I mean, because obviously you've been on the inside and gotten their plans or talked to folks. What is their agenda or the the motive, well, the means on how they're going to exterminate four billion of us. I've got some uh, hints, perhaps famine, perhaps the biological bird flu. Uh, I don't think nukes because it's going to mess things up a little bit too much mm -hmm. for them. Yeah, I'm sure I don't even, see, this is the thing too, uh, down through the ages they've used all of these methods. Uh, nothing is new. Nothing at all is new. Um, when you look back in old times when they would besiege a castle, and most castles were like city towns with big walls around them, they would cut off your water supply so they had to own your water. They had to stop food from coming in and wait until you'd use the food within till you're starving. They used plague because they had, they knew even thousands of years ago that diseases like smallpox, some people became immune when they recovered they would use those as special troops, companies, and they would fire infected bodies over uh, with ballistas over the, the, the walls of the inside people and spread plagues, etc. So they'd used all this kind of stuff in past ages. Uh, these are standard warfare techniques. Warfare isn't just uh, bang, bang, you're dead. Uh, it, it, there's many things, including economics. They used to oh. catapult uh, diseased animals into the fortresses to, to spread disease among the fort. Yes, and not only animals, they used humans too. They'd find where the nearest plague was. They'd get the guys who'd had that particular one and recovered, and they would use them to handle the bodies and to fire them over. Oh, great. Yeah. Um, the, uh, you uh, see, they don't even have to do that because they're already training uh, those young children who are growing up now into a whole new belief system, a new reality. Michael Gorbachev, and we forget that he was the president of the Soviet Union. Uh, Michael Gorbachev has written books. He now works for the United Nations. It lives and, in the Presidio in San Francisco. Yes, and, and he has the green cross of the Knights of Lazarus flying outside. They're all knights, you see. Mm -hmm. and, um, and he wrote one of his books towards a, a new civilization and towards a new beginning. He, he said, he says, I myself, am a, 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 I'm personally an atheist. He said, it, then he goes on to say, we, he doesn't say who we are, but he says, we are presently in, in the, uh, uh, creating a new religion for the, for the general population, which will be taught to the young. It will be based on a form of earth worship. What he meant by that is that through indoctrination 
of catastrophes through overpopulation, global warming, all of the terrifying scenarios they can create in the, in the minds of a child, um, those children will voluntarily allow themselves to be sterilized. You know, I've, I, got, I connected the dots on this all by myself before I even knew any better. I said, you know, there's always been desire for world domination, whether yes. it's through the Catholic Church or Genghis Khan or uh, the emperors of Rome. I said, but there's always been a pocket of resistance somewhere where there's a slave uprising or people get tired of it or they overextend themselves. So they've never had complete, no one's pulled it off yet. And I said, there's one way they can do this. You find the most common enemy that everybody's going to agree with, and then they'll all lockstep go towards it. And I said, it's going to be the Earth. It's like, save the planet. We all have something in common now. Let's all work towards saving the planet. And, we'll, and damn, it's unfolding before our eyes. Yes, and also, you see, they have many think tanks in a pyramid structure from the top all, all the way down, working on different aspects of public planning, propaganda, um, information, and so on. And one of them, one of their big think tanks is called the Club of Rome. And uh, the Club of Rome, the founders themselves published a book called, uh, it's called um, The First Revolution. And it's about, it's about the, actually the first type of a new type of revolution, but it's called The First Revolution. In there, they talk about the, how the founders had been told to find ways of uniting the planet and they discussed invasions from outer space could be convinced the public to unite, etc., etc. Uh, that may, might not work. Um, and it says, then we hit upon the idea of using overpopulation and threats to the environment as, as the very possible thing they could implement and make people believe. Now, Rothschild's uh, dynasty is, a, is the main mover behind the uh, environmental movement. Is that right? Uh, the Rothschild is only one of them. Okay. Uh, there's, there's about 12 major banking families, but even then, they're, they're, most of the people who really run this world never have their names mentioned in newspapers. They have incredibly large amounts of money, very old dynasties, and and um, and they keep out of the public limelight. Where would you recommend our listeners go to get news? I mean, we've got the Internet, obviously. Uh -huh. uh, we've got this radio station. But when you look at the mass media, whether it's the magazines, the tellies, uh, other radio stations, uh, cable, satellite, I mean, that is mass hypnosis. It, it, it's incredible. Yeah, repetition. They all see the same things at the same time to get it across to us. And uh, you, you can't really. What you have to do. Because even, even I mean, most coast-to-coast -coast little, even the AM stations like Toronto, all they do is parrot the main news given to them by router and API. And so it's, it's a, what you have now is really controlled news, all coming from a, a two sources. The eye. And they just parrot the same thing. And the more they parrot it, the more the public thinks it must be true. Because everywhere they, they tune into is saying the same thing. <laughs> yeah. It's a simple technique to dominate the media. You know, it's, I've, I challenge a lot of people to debate me, and once they get past their repeated cliches, they're pretty empty. Yes. And you see, you have to go into people's lives, like like we're talking about George Orwell and, and his father. I mean, he, he, in his own biography, he, he tells you, he says that his father uh, was the, in charge of the British Opium Corporation. And then he says, I myself was groomed to work for this same establishment. That's why he was let in on the understanding of the techniques of revolutions and 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 wars to bring us to a, a future 
world where terrorism would be everywhere. He knew the whole agenda, and he turned against them after he came back from the Spanish Civil War when he realized that the communists and all of the other opposing factions at the top were joined at the hip. You know, I, down below didn't know. Um, I think I was listening to Rince the other night, and it was just a good example of how these people stay within themselves. Is that uh -huh. Al Gore's daughter just got married a month or so ago, and she married, gave the name out, and Rince said, go look it up. And I knew who it was. I can't remember right now. It's JT somebody or Pete. But it was one of the original families that was at Jekyll Island. They said, yeah. Uh, and it's like, damn, they don't get out of the circle much, do they? <laughs> they don't. They, they are incredible. And even Charles Darwin, the same thing. Charles Darwin belonged to some of these uh, the, the secret organizations. His father had brought out uh, a book on the origin of species before he did, because all it was was a high, the higher Masonic belief system of evolution coming from it's really, it's really, um Hinduism. You start off as slime and amoebas and work your way up. And and uh, his grandfather's book didn't get very far, so they had to make Charles a star, and they built him up to be a star for a whole year in all the media before the public eventually saw his books on the shelves. They made him into a star by saying he was one over and over and over, and a genius. But Charles Darwin himself uh, only married into one other family as his father had, as his grandfather had. Another family was the Wedgwood family that has the big pottery uh, factories and so on and um, when Charles's wife died he married his mother's sister uh, who was a Wedgwood they were all Wedgwood so the Darwins only intermarried for generations into one other family now Wedgwoods. it's um, hard for people to, to believe that they are being hypnotized I mean it's the, the grid's out there, the matrix is out there, uh, the, the constant reinforcement every day, and we don't even know what they're dropping on us from the sky. I mean, they, they like to poo-poo it because somebody discovered chemtrails. Oh, that's that conspiracy, wacko stuff. Well, they didn't, didn't stop it, then it was not a big deal. <laughs> well, Rumsfeld, you see, here's the thing. After 9-11, uh, many little quips come across television programs and news stations, which the big boys, or at least the front men, say themselves. And I was watching a, a little bit on someone else's television, because I didn't have one at the time. I didn't want one. And, uh, and Rumsfeld was asked, look, if another terrorist attack happens on a major city like this on a bigger scale, how are you going to stop or control the panic? And he said, we have aerosolized Prozac and Valium uh, ready to spray over large areas when required. And that's when it hit me. So I knew they were using aerial spraying to modify the weather and, and under weather warfare. Uh, that's in a treaty that the U.S. and Britain and other countries signed at the United Nations in the 1970s. They would spray the atmosphere with uh, aluminized uh, content, aluminum oxide and other metals, and then use harp on top of it because harp then works better uh, because they can make a, a, a better circuit out of the atmosphere by the spraying. But I, but I thought there'd be more to this than, than, than meets the eye, because they never do two things or one thing at a time. They'll do multiple things. And it made perfect sense they would also use uh, tranquilizers to tranquilize whole vast populations while they bring us through the greatest changes in history into a completely new way of living. You know, we say all the time, and, and 
most Americans do. How could those people in Nazi Germany have been so stupid? Didn't they see what was going on before their eyes? I mean, and we're living through what I believe may be a worse nightmare. It is worse. It is worse. Uh, you've got to be able to jump from where we are as ordinary people and jump into the mindsets of military planners and strategists. And when you see what they, they plan for the future, and it truly is a completely radically, radically different society than the one we know now. And uh, if it's a planned society, you, will, you won't have a child unless authorized. Uh, you will serve a world state. Uh, and they've, they've said that in all their charters, including the Council on Foreign Relations. All your information will be censored, even on the Internet. Yeah, and, and eventually you will have no in, uh, ability to even think independently as an individual because they, they really do mean this, that they, they're going to take us from computer, which is a, 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 it was really a conditioning method to get you hooked on something, then to the iPod, then to an implanted chip. And they've had global meetings, they have they've implanted chips ready to go, which will interface with your nervous system into regional computers. And you can find this at Loyola University, unless they've pulled it in Louisiana, because that's where they had their global meetings on this, this brain chip. And um, they, they, so that a training method from computer to get us hooked on it, to the iPod, and, and then cell phone, etc., right down to a brain chip and how much more convenient it will be. But once everyone has it, they, they said at the Loyola, the Loyola World Science Meeting on this particular chipping process, they said once this, this happens and everyone has the chip, uh, they'll be unable to think of themselves as separate individuals anymore. It'll be impossible to think of yourself. He said, think of it more like the hive. And that's when I thought about the Borg from Star Trek. That's what they're talking about. You know, and, it, and they're here. I mean, because uh, I remember seeing stories about this. You can see how they sell this. Here's a family that volunteered to take the first chip, and, oh, yeah. we're so happy. We'll always know where our child is. I'll never lock myself out of my house again. I just swipe my hand, and I'll never have any worries about medical if I'm unconscious. I mean, I can't. I'm so grateful you gave this to me. Mm-hmm. And, like, and I saw all the networks sell this thing. It's like, oh, here's, here's Mr. and Mrs. Future Couple, and look how happy they are because they've taken the chip. That's right, and, and you also have companies now. Uh, which are really fronts for the NSA because the guys who head them uh, admit their NSA ex-employees uh, chipping youngsters, teenagers for like the Badger clubs, uh, nightclubs across the world. They have them in Holland and Spain and elsewhere where they, they chip you in the arm as a passive chip. Ooh. But they can actually put uh, your ID in there and put a, a whole bunch of credits in there that you pay for in advance and you can show off by not having to pull money out of your pocket in front of the girlfriend and just swipe your arm past this little, you know, infrared thing. Well, I saw a story just two weeks ago where this large chip company has started chipping the babies in the hospitals. And, of course, it's yeah. a little band they put on their legs. And it's right out of the womb. We put this band on. So, therefore, there'll never, ever, ever be a problem with baby swapping or losing a baby. And, uh-huh. you know, and so they've already conditioned the young conditioned couples. people, too. Yeah. yeah, this is a wonderful thing. I, it's, I'm going to be absolutely guaranteed this is my baby. And, you know, the medical record's right there for anybody who comes in and checks on it. And, oh, I'm, I'm so much better. Thank you. That's right, and the British government and other governments have already said that they will implant. Uh, it's always the same two groups to begin with. It's the very young and the elderly. The, the most powerless you go for first. Yeah. And, and they've said that they're going to implant all those who possibly have Alzheimer's with a chip. That's going to be law. Let's talk a har- about HARP a little bit. 
Mm-hmm. What do you know about HARP? And because uh, some folks know about it, say, oh yeah, that's that uh, Tesla experiment up in Alaska. Uh, it's going to cook the ionosphere and uh, maybe free electricity for us all. But they've got over what forty-four installations of these things now. There's over fifty-four, fifty-seven, I think, that they admit to, <laughs> and uh, they have them. They can coordinate them all together and hit any place on the planet or a whole continent if but, they wish. But these are multi-use machines, from what I understand, because my just oh, little yeah. fraction of knowledge about them is that yeah. they can alter weather. They can focus destruction beams yeah. uh, on anywhere in the world they want, and also for mind control. Yes, it's, it's, it's so uh, for their point of view, it's a wonderful tool. <laughs> and, and, and so, yeah, it's an old technique. They put a lot of money into it. And they've already admitted that they put their faith in science to control the world and the populations. And they mean it. And this, this HARP technology uh, literally, um, as I say, it's signed into a treaty at the United Nations. Everyone should look it up, signed in the 1970s. They can also cause earthquakes with it tsunamis with the droughts in it for warfare purposes or flooding for warfare purposes. And that's a great way to extort a nation. And that's happening. They're using it. Uh, if you go through the shortwave bands, you can actually get over 20 places where the harp is being used 24 hours a day now. That started about six years ago. Now, and I have all of them all written down here. I have all the frequencies. And so what it also can do is carry a secondary carrier signal which can uh, pulse at the same frequencies as the human brain. That's also documented in the treaty at the United Nations. And they can make whole populations either very aggressive, very passive, or, or anxious, uh, you know. Uh, so that is all work. It's not a trial and error thing. It's down to fine art now. I've um, had listeners over the years call the station and talk about tunnels. And they go, oh, yeah, there's alien bases, there's super military stuff, and they're underground. And, and I kind of, and I was brainwashed, I was conditioned, and I poo-pooed them off. I go, yeah, yeah, right, right, right. And then when I was listening to you the other day, and you talked about a machine that is owned by the RAND Corporation that's yeah. currently up in Greenland. Oh, they have many of them. Yeah. That, yeah. that can dig, I don't know what diameter, but uh, dig a tunnel of five miles an hour? An hour, yeah. Well, now to any kind of rock. Uh-huh. And at what diameter are we talking about here? Uh, what the largest one they let the public know about. Uh, you, you, and remember, this thing passes through, and also it, it uh, melts rock, and it will solidify behind the machine and cause a casing. So it's, it's all in one. It, it, it forms all those purposes. You could actually put in uh, two railroad tracks side by side, you know, going going together, one way and the other. Uh, when it passes. So how big is this network uh, here on the North American continent? We have no idea, except they've had these things since at least the end of World War II. You see, sciences are all, it's, it's the greatest thing. Uh, we, we, they've done a very good job in the last oh, almost 15 to 20 years in convincing us that they're going to they're, they're let us know all the latest technology and science they have. That's here, the biggest here, lie ever. Here's your iPod. Uh, yeah, <laughs> and, and so uh, we forget during the Cold War uh, people were getting killed and assassinated if they, if they knew too much about high military secret technologies. And they've always kept the higher technologies secret from the people. The trick is to make the people convinced that they are being told about the latest uh, attempts at, at uh, whatever cloning or, or electrical technologies. 
That's the trick, is to convince us, and that's why they fund these big magazines like Popular Science. And, and the average reader will think, well, I know it all. I know what they're capable of doing. No, no, you're not. You're, you're kept in the dark. That's the purpose of Popular Science. <laughs> I've heard that whatever we see, the military's had 60 years before. I'd say even longer, you know. I'd say even longer. But, I mean, think of the money, uh, the old t industries that keep going. If, if we've got tunnel-making machines here that can be mass-produced, and, I mean, just how much, what's it cost now, $20 million a mile to build a stupid ancient highway? Well, yeah, because, uh, you see, we live in such a corrupt system, and that, again, is another thing we have to understand. What we see at the bottom, and we call corruption, is normal practice above higher higher levels. We all know we can get hydrogen from water. I mean, it's there, the technology. We've all seen the machines. We've all seen the yeah. cars run on it. Why are we still going down this asinine path of, of oil? It's because it was never intended to. When they gave us the car, they already had planned a whole hundred years of, of because I say the world is just a business plan. They'd already planned where they would take the world, and they did not want people. They wanted people to travel, build up the factories, etc., for a short period while they financed through their taxes this global takeover and armies, etc., but they also wanted at the end to create a world society of collective society, uh, city-states. Now, uh, now they call them habitat areas. They don't want people to have cars <laughs> in the very near future. Well, so that's why they never gave you any other technology. Oh, I just saw in today's morning paper out here in little Podunk, Montana, you know, somebody wants to build 700 houses on uh, 80 acres, you know, little postage stamp lots, cluster housing. You don't need big yards anymore. We'll all pack you together. We'll have this little open space for you over here. It'll be wonderful. It's all Agenda 21. It is Agenda 21, and even that's not the final solution to them. It's a stepping stone. We're conditioned like you train rats step by step. Once you accept one step, it's easier to accept the next step. It seems quite natural, and it's evolving. That's how we think. And, um, and so the habitat areas at the United Nations, and you've got to go into the United Nations and Agenda 21, and they state right there that the world they are creating will eventually have no private property. Uh, there'll be habitat areas. There'll be no private transportation. Only essential vehicles only. And you'll need passes to go from city to city. You'll need passes, permission, and so on. And, and again, this is all a control mechanism for a small elite who will not have be brain chipped, a small elite who will have the freedom to travel the whole world and go hunting in the bush when they want to by, by helicopters dropping them off and picking them up. Now, let's get back to the immediate short-term plans here for the United States. This this Middle Eastern war has been long since planned. The next step is Iran and Syria, and it is planned to break us militarily, expend our resources, uh, financially bankrupt us, which is happening daily, probably at a more, more accelerated rate than anybody wants to realize. Yeah. Uh, the Federal Reserve note is crashing around the world. We can't If we can't finance the war or finance our day-to-day -day debt here in this country, we'll be begging for a new central banker's currency. Instead of having our Congress do the right thing and coin our own money like they're supposed to, mm -hmm. uh, I see this thing happening within months and months, not decades. It, it depends how... how uh, see, China was, it was decided in the 1930s they would build China up. And you'll find this in the books of the Council on Foreign Relations and the Royal Institute of International Affairs that they'd use the U.S. right through to the end of the millennium and into the new. And then they would be planning the process of a new uh, superpower, China, to take over as policemen of the world for another temporary phase. So that's true. The U.S. has a particular function for a particular 
period of time and then they go down they will go down as they're finishing off the Middle East now as as this plan pa plan pans out and it comes to fruition for them that will be the time I think when they say okay let's get rid of the the labor force that uh, brought us here because we just don't need them now we got what we wanted and they're afraid of too many people um, See, they, they can't keep giving us a service economy, which we're on now. We're on a service economy, and we don't produce things anymore. And um, the, the, the big economists at the beginning of this whole service economy idea admitted themselves that it was like going into water and dog paddling until you couldn't paddle any further. It was not intended to keep going forever. It can't, and therefore it will go down. It's a temporary stopgap as you go down. I try to explain that to my friends. I said, you know, here's our, our usefulness as a nation. We're consumers and producers. We produce, we consume. We produce, we consume. Um, we no longer produce. And all of our consuming is based on credit, whether it's your car, your house, your, your monkey wards bill, your visa, your credit card, your living paycheck to paycheck. Everything we're buying from China and importing is on credit. Now, once the world quits issuing us credit, we're done. We, that's, that's we can't produce, we can't consume, we we crash. Yeah, and, and that's the agenda. That, you see, that those at the top have always been globalists, no matter where they're born. And these top families that you think, even the ones in Britain, the, 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 the English folk, the ordinary English people think, well, they're ours, they're our kings and queens and nobility. No, <laughs> they're not. They're internationalists. They've always been. They only mar they marry their own cousins from abroad, you know. In fact, they've never married into the populations that they actually dominate and preside over. So, uh, no, they've always been internationalists, and, and uh, they've never seen the wor their world as a local world at all. It's always been an international world. The, the trick was to make us, who are tribal-based, think that we're still nations. Yeah, and then Kissinger and his boys, as Brinsky and Rockefellers, are all getting ready to open uh, push legislation this August to... Uh, introduce the Security and Prosperity and Peace Agreement for North America, which is the, the North American Union. Yeah. Um, and even that, people are like, oh, no, no, oh, they'll let us still have our little flag. We can still have our little national anthem and go to our baseball games. Mm -hmm. But uh, the, the shadow government's going to be completely integrated. The corporate Absolutely. world. It, it, actually, it already is. Yeah, it is. It, it already is. I mean, it has been since uh, even World War One and President Wilson. That's when it really came out more into the open. When they, they formed the League of Nations, the U.S. funded the setting up of the League of Nations, and uh, Colonel Mandel House was a real boss uh, behind Wilson. The president is never really the boss man; it's always the man behind him, and uh, because he's the one who goes between the big bankers, the big uh, internationalists, and back to the president. And Mandel House, his contact for London was uh, Sir Earl Grey, uh, who worked for the Royal Institute for International Affairs. To set up this world system based on the colonial system of of the British Empire. Yeah, our audience is listening to Alan Watt. He runs the webpage CuttingThroughTheMatrix.net. I encourage all of you to, to support Alan. Keep his fine work going for all of us. Uh, he's very helpful in this in this fight for the truth and peeling back the matrix. Uh, go to his website at CuttingThroughTheMatrix.com. You can get his books there. You can get his DVDs there. Do not copy them and, and share them. This is the way Alan makes his money, and we've got to support people that are on our side that are trying to help us out through this. And Alan's got no other motive than getting the truth out here to as many people as we can to help mankind, not to sit back and profit and go, well, I got mine, I'm done, I'm going to retire. I mean, Alan truly lives the life. You live almost off-grid up in the northern Ontario, I believe it is, isn't it? Yeah, I'm up in the north here. 
I'm still getting my wooden for the winter. <laughs> <laughs> now, one of our callers asked me to um, ask you a question about the significance, because these people trade in symbolism. Yeah. About us being in Babylon, where the final battle here is Babylon, which is mm -hmm. I.E. Baghdad today. Yeah, Babylon is a, an amazing, uh, it's a, a cult terminology, really. Uh, and a lawn always comes from lion. And uh, you also have the baby lion as well. And um, and you also have the bab, which is a high master. And, and and they can literally take a system. See, Babylon was a system more than just a place. You can transfer that system elsewhere across the world and build up and take down empires and always move it to the next empire that you're building up. And that's what's been done through down through history. Uh, they, they, when they move out of a country, they take their wealth with them and down comes the country and they've built up a new empire. What's interesting to me at the moment is that uh, if you look into places like Bahrain, how heavily they're funding, the U.S. is funding Bahrain to build it up as, a, as the most modern place in the world. And even Halliburton, which is, <laughs> as you know, is the only authorized global uh, massive corporation to do rebuilding and restructuring across the planet. Uh, no one voted for this at the lower ranks. It's all the top guys who decided so Halliburton's moved their headquarters from Texas to Bahrain. The Louvre in Paris has building a second Louvre, a pyramid-shaped one, like the glass one they have in, in Paris, uh, over to, to Bahrain as well. And what's even more interesting is that H.G. Wells, who was a, uh, an officially authorized propagandist for this system, uh, wrote in one of his books uh, about the, 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 the final war which would be a war where they even gas the public from the air on the shape of things to come. Uh, he, he said uh, that the, the, the Freemasons of the air, the scientific brotherhood, was, would gas the people from the air uh, to, to conquer the whole world, but they would use the place where they have the final war as, as eventually that will become their capital. So it's like from Babylon back to Babylon. That's what's so interesting, the circle of this. He even said in that book that, that eventually Britain, that, that the final war would begin in Basra, which is Iraq. It's a, it's a city it's in the southern part of Iraq. And that's where the British troops went in. The U.S. went to the north, and Britain went into Basra. Uh, so this was written in the 1920s. And you see, my good, well, he knew exactly the, the formula for the next 150 years or so. So it's from Babylon back to Babylon. And, and that's the symbology that's tremendously interesting about this because the elite in all ages have never been massacred and fell and lost everything and a new elite, a new elite takes over. They move from, from the empire they dominate to the next one that they're setting up, all down through history. There was a broadcast last week on rents, and uh, Macau did the story about, uh, I think it's William Bulford. He was the uh, Forbes Asian... Uh, editor of their magazine over there, basically giving a, a ultimatum to the Illuminati from the secret societies of China that said, you keep it up, we're taking you all out. Mm -hmm. How much credibility do you put in that? I don't know yet. I just, we just wait and see what starts to happen. You'll know that if, if people start to get rubbed out, what's happening. You know, I, when I read that story and I heard the interview, I didn't think it was really such a bad thing. <laughs> well, here's the thing. Here's the sad thing, though. You see... We're dealing with people who are ruthless at the top. There's no doubt about that. Uh, if it takes killing millions... I mean, I remember when they were starving, the ordinary people 
in Iraq uh, during the 10-year period between Gulf War I and II. And uh, Madeleine Albright, who, again, an incredible history. Her grandfather set up, while he was the top communist, uh, power of Stalin. He was a very close friend of Stalin, her grandfather. And he set up the beginnings of the Green Party, which was to lead the world into this global government. And there she is, um, representing the United Nations, or the U.S. Department of the United Nations. And she was asked on national television, she said, and, and the guy said, at that time they'd, they'd killed about, uh, I don't know, 10,000, 20,000 uh, 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 Iraqis, men, women, and children, through starvation. Uh, and I think it was even half a million, 500,000. And, and without blinking or not, she was asked, do you think that's really worth the, the goal to make one man capitulate with his henchmen at the top? And, and she says, absolutely, without blinking an eyelid. Unbelievable. And that was the, that's, that was the, you're looking at either something that, that's a demon talking back to you or, or, or the, the ultimate psychopath beyond even the average psychopath. I mean, here in America, we like, always like to think we're the good guys. We wear the white hats based on the, the propaganda history they've told us or led us to believe. Mm -hmm. And they don't tell us, you know, some of the real war crimes that are going on through Eisenhower and prison camps and Agent Orange and, and all that kind of nonsense. But they know for a fact that this depleted uranium that we're spreading all over the globe over there, and it gets into the atmosphere, it gets into the dust, into the lungs. It is killing people by the tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, deforming babies, and it's going to pollute that area and, and cause genocide for thousands of years. It's very possible. Uh, and on the other hand, too, these characters at the top who think primarily of their own survival at all eight times and ages have already created massive underground bases for survival for themselves where they could live for another thousand, two thousand years or more if necessary. Uh, they have done this, using our tax money again. Margaret Thatcher admitted that when she was Prime Minister. Because she was, because the Man Alive series in Britain, very much like 60 Minutes, tried, to, and here's a very important part I'll go into, it's all, it's all connected. Uh, there was supposed to be a pamphlet, a booklet, uh, given to every British citizen, or available from their post office or library, put up with the government and it it had the whole agenda of what to do uh, if there was a, a bombardment by radiation in a city or cities or bacterial or viral warfare and it, 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 all NATO countries signed the same agreement and supposed to have given, given every citizen a copy of this I didn't get my copy yeah well <laughs> eventually Man Alive had to get one from the government and it was heavily censored and blacked out this freely available copy because in it it stated that every signatory to NATO and that includes the US and Canada and all the other countries um, here's the formula if there's a biological attack or a viral attack in a city or a part of the country the military is to surround that whole area any individual trying to escape uh, the quarantine is to be shot on sight if whole groups or mobs try to riot and break out, they to be bombed by CS gas from the air. Ooh. And no one is to be... And the whole lot is to be contained, basically, until they die. And That's the NATO plan. And so then they went to Maggie Thatcher and they said, well, what's the, what's the, what's the, the plan for the elite? 
because they'd found out that there was military bases underground that the elite were to be flown to immediately with Harrier jump jet and helicopter and, and picked up and she, and she says, well, she says, we'll get in there. And she said, our families will be in there. And, the, and she was asked, well, what about the average person? She says, oh, if they try to get in, our special troops or SS will, will, will shoot them down before they get in. I mean, this was on national television. Uh, you you know, see, these we're dealing with monsters at the top. We are scum to them. But see, they've also had to uh, who to draft or recruit the special op forces from you know yeah. the, the masses here. They must have, you know, when you think about, it, okay, how could this massive building of tunnels go on in America, mm -hmm. involving crews of fifty, sixty thousand people, yeah. and and having military guys guard them day and night? How come the story's not getting out? I mean, what kind of mind control, brainwashing have they done on these people mm -hmm. that where they think it's a good thing to keep it from us? It's, it's, well, they showed us again a documentary special on how they did Cheyenne Mountain in the U.S., where the big, big military base is. And uh, they literally hollowed out a, a whole mountain. Yeah. And they built a railroad track going up to it to take all away the dirt. And uh, and yet, when you go into it, all the higher contractors, etc., um, which is part of the beauty of bringing in outsiders always, they can bring in foreigners and, and different people from all over the globe to do the contracting and, and the work and then send them back to their own countries. They ask no questions. They don't think any further. And it's lost. It's uh, not difficult to keep massive projects quiet from the public. Do you see warring fractions among the world elites, say, for instance, uh, the Rockefellers may be pissed off at the Rothschilds. The Rothschilds say, you know what, we're going to finish you off and destroy your little Federal Reserve notes here. Mm -hmm. um, I don't see really that kind. There's more cooperation amongst them. Uh, because they know that money is just a con game anyway. Uh, it's only important that we believe that it's useful and accepted as the only way to live. Uh, it's their trick. Um, it's a means to an end for the elite. Eventually, we've, we've all to be given credits. They've said this in, in the big books for the United Nations. Every citizen, when there's no private property, will be allocated so many credits at the beginning of every week into a, your bank account and you can't save them up. So even if you don't use them all up, you'll start again with the same amount on Monday. And if you don't go along with the system or you, you become a problem, you'll be punished by having withdrawal of credits which you can't pay your rent or buy your food. It's to be used as a tool for punishment. Wow. We are on the air with uh, Alan Watt. He's got a website called Cutting Through the Matrix. You've been on every... Uh uh, major radio station that I know of and websites and uh, interviews for newspapers. I encourage all of our listeners to get, we haven't even scratched the surface here uh, with Alan's knowledge and wisdom that he wants to share with you. So please get his DVDs, his books, um, you know, let your kids read them, let your parents read them. Um, you know, we got to keep supporting folks that are helping us in this battle here. Now, Alan, we're getting ready to take off here and I've had you on for about an hour and, and a half uninterrupted, uh, which I think is great. What one of the, I think the biggest fears, and I may just be, you know, having unbased hope here. I think one of their biggest fears is that we're, we are waking up. We may be forming a resistance to them. You know, there may be some of us who have not taken as much fluoride or, or breathed as deep or, or putting those chemicals in our skin and our body. Um, is there hope for a resistance of this, of a grand awakening where we call bullshit on this whole thing? I, I don't think it's a grand word. awakening, to be honest with you. Most people are too far into a scientifically designed conditioning to break through. Uh, most people will find it impossible to believe that they're 
absolute monsters in charge of them. They've been trained to believe these are the good guys. Um, and they cannot believe that people are so evil. They, they, we judge people on an individual level as to how we could manage things. We can imagine a little white lie or whatever, uh, a little bit of deception, but we can't imagine something so horrible as, as the subject as we're talking about today. Uh, and people actually planning this cold-bloodedly. Uh, and yet that's, that's the only reason they do get away with this kind of thing. Um, so most people know they will not wake up uh, and, and it does boil down to an extent on a personal choice. I want to believe I'm being well taken care of. And it's also true that lots of people will love socialism as long as they think there's experts taking care of all the big problems for them. I get so they can go and play forever like, like little children. I get my pension. Uh, yeah, that's it. And so it's not up to big amounts of people. It's, a, it's, a, uh, uh, it's up to people who are awake to start um, vocalizing their knowledge and creating ripples around them until all these little pools start, these ripples start to merge with other ripples. That's how you start a, a movement, but it has to be done very quickly. It has to be done quickly, so there is hope out there for us. Uh, I don't think things are going to change too much. I think the plan is going to play out, uh, and then we pick up the pieces from there. Yes. It will, have no doubt about it. And. Uh, they're on a roll right now, and they can't stop now. They know if they stop and give us a breathing space from terror, terror, we'll, we'll fall back to sleep. And this, this, remember, terrorism, and Carl Quigley said, he said, the main purpose of war is to change societies on all sides. He said, because government expands massively its powers over the control of the every individual during warfare. Is there and, any, is there and that's what we're seeing, Is there anything our listeners can do on a daily basis to stop the mind control or is there some way to unplug something? I mean, I, I loved uh, one of your sayings the other day, I think it was you, that if, uh, no, it was somebody else, it was Lindsay Williams, who said if Jesus were alive today, he would go into the Federal Reserve and unplug the mainframe. <laughs> yes, well, the thing is, I mean, we don't even need the Federal Reserve, it's just a, a building. It's just a, yeah. it's a can, it's a con, but you don't even really have a treasury. You know? no, we don't. Uh, it's just a con and... Uh, what we have to do is to turn off TV is, is to get through to the children this is a long term strategy yep. and Rumsfeld said it himself this could be a hundred years war <laughs> so if it takes a hundred years to bring this new society into the making uh, of total control they're willing to go that far which means they're already working on the minds of the children which they plan to own they want to own the minds you know, see here in Montana there's a lot of families that homeschool their kids yeah. and the brightest, most smartest, intelligent kids I've ever met in my life. Uh, I mean, they are they are university grade level at 14. Yeah. And they're always trying to pass laws to make it to criminalize teaching your own child. Like, oh, you're abusing the child. You know, you're not having social engineering here. You're not giving enough Prozac, and you know, you report to the school anyway. Yeah. Yeah. So That's they, right. They do work. And, and, and most most parents, as you know, who send their children off to school, is two parent working families. Uh, they don't have time for their children, and many of them even expect the state to to entertain their children for them and and give them playgrounds after school and, and ball games and so on. Uh, it's almost like they're, they're incidental to each other. There's no real communication, and uh, unless the parents get involved and realise the responsibility that they do have to continue, um, uh, it's not just the life that you know of. I'm talking about that is you're continuing. Uh, the ability of, of the beauty of 
the individual thought or thinker. You see, that's what they're, they're about to distinguish or extinguish, is to destroy that ability to be an independent thinker who appreciates the beauties of the world, uh, of people, uh, and all, all the better things of life. What they can, want to destroy that. What can we expect out of Alan Watts here in the coming weeks and future? Have you got a new book underway? you got some more DVDs? I have. I, I just am so sure. Well, I'm a one-man band here. And it's kind of, uh, there's a lot of work involved even in this. And believe you me, uh, if I if I wasn't motivated uh, through uh, an imperative to do this, uh, I'd choose something else. But there's no choice. We're at the end of a particular road. And I think we all have a responsibility to change this. Uh, and no matter what it takes, if it, and it means burning into the ground, then so be it. Because the evil like this cannot be allowed to, to continue. Alan, we're here for you anytime uh, you want. Uh, the radio station is at your disposal. We hope to get you back on in, in the future. I truly appreciate you sharing your valuable time with us here, and I want all of our listeners to at least visit the website, cuttingthroughthematrix.net. Um, if if you can't afford it, please purchase his DVDs and books. It'll help Alan out, and, and the more information that we can get out to all of us, the, all, the better we are going to be. It's knowledge and wisdom is probably going to be our only tools to survive this, if we can. Alan, thank you so much for joining us here on KGEZ. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much, and I'm glad we finally hooked up. Yeah. Thank you, sir. Bye-bye. Bye now. Whoa. Marathon. Got to take the break. Tonight. Say-